Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hello. Um, he just talked to you about an encouraging word. I uh, guess I need to apologize for what evidently was a discouraging word a bit. Um, I need to apologize. Last week, uh, what I said at one point in time, it was not my intention to create concern. Um, there seem to be a large number of people who are convinced that I am on my way out the door. Uh, I am here, and most of you are too. That's good. Um, I had said tongue-in-cheek with a smile at the beginning of the service that it may be my last message because of the content, and knowing that there would be some individuals that could misread what I said on that Sunday as a political statement, which it was not as well as today, could be misread the same thing, and it is not. Um, Having said that, I did mention it later in the service again, and my sense of fatigue in dealing with such a subject, and in general, I think, soaked through in such a way that there seemed to be a significant number of people that were either A, concerned, or um, anticipating with great joy uh, my departures. Either way, it's not happening. We're united as a congregation and sometimes and as a people and as a leadership. And sometimes in offering things of that nature, you don't know that until after it's done to what degree that unity exists. It's clear uh, in this past week uh, that we're pretty much aligned that there is to be, as the message said, no other symbol and certainly no other cross having our allegiance or shaping us in the way that the cross of Christ does. So having said that, Um, Before we get into our conversation today, if you would join me in prayer, please. Father, we come before you and we recognize that during this season that tithes and offerings are continued to be laid at your feet in acts of worship, whether that's online or whether that's in person in this gathering right now. And so, Lord, I ask your blessing upon those who are giving. Um, I also pray, Lord, that you'd receive from us these things in the attitude it's meant of thanksgiving. Everything we have comes from you. And so, Lord, as we partner with you in these ways, um, we thank you. I thank you, Lord, for a congregation that's concerned. And um, I ask, Lord, that you would shape this conversation yet today, and that you would give an illumination of mind and heart, and where my words fall short, that your spirit would fill in. So we commit these things into your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend on the law and the prophets. Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 39 says, Therefore know today and take it into your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. And then this line, there is no other. I'm going to ask you to say no other with me. No other. So I'm going to repeat this and I want you to fill that in. That God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Okay, you're good right now, all right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. As last week we began to talk about the importance of symbols and the symbol of the cross and how um, it's important that we uh, maintain that which is true in Scripture. Today I want to talk to you about no other gods. And um, to do this, I'm going to share with you an event that happened on June 15 in 1996. Um, and I apologize for those of you on live stream, uh, realize that as much as we try to shape things, uh, we don't, you're not going to get a full understanding a lot of times unless you're on location. Um, sometimes there certain images don't pop up as they should on the screen and other stuff. So June 15, 1996. In Manchester, England, the largest bomb since World War II was detonated. It was detonated in a shopping area in downtown Manchester. Um, I'm very familiar with this event because I was there. Uh, my wife and I and our, at that time, two-year-old son were visiting friends in Manchester, an ex-Royal Marine who was uh, on his way out of the Marines and in the process of um, educating himself to be a pastor. We had just left them and, uh, and had left that area of town uh, when a short time later this bomb was detonated. It was detonated by a group called the IRA. Now, for those of you that are preoccupied with your financial situation, this has nothing to do with individual retirement accounts. It has to do with the Irish Republican Army. And um, a period of, of time in history referred to as the Troubles in Ireland. The IRA was a terrorist organization that was attempting to um, force the north of Ireland, which is overwhelmingly Protestant and aligned with Great Britain, to join with Ireland the nation, which is predominantly Catholic. And so um, this struggle had been going on for centuries. Now there are those that will tell you uh, in Ireland themselves that this is not about a clash of religion. It's not a religious war between Protestants and Catholics, and that's true. But the roots of this struggle were formed along sectarian lines. It was formed, in other words, by those who viewed themselves as Catholic and having a difference of opinion initially theologically but mostly politically with those who were Protestant. In fact, the Protestant faction in Northern Ireland was led by a Protestant pastor. Somewhere in the process, and though now it's been somewhat resolved due to the Good Friday Accords, uh, 
Um, so there's somewhat of peace there. So even though it started off initially as a religious struggle, it became this political one, but initially it was one of, of sectarian violence. It was those who were believing in the same Bible and the same Lord as having a conflict with one another, that then that crossed into the political realm, and then from there crossed into violence that stretched over the centuries, resulting in this bombing that I missed by a short period of time. And just as a point of information, I've also missed two other terrorist attacks, and my wife says the moments are coming closer together. Do not travel with me. <laughs> not that I'm paranoid, it's just that they're all out to get me. I was struck by this particular conflict, though, because while it was political in nature, it was really between Christians and, and at its core that believed in the same thing, and how they could let that political process become such a degree of disunity, I don't understand. But let's put that aside, because it was really about politics, and I get that. So let's set that issue aside. We talked last week about the Crusaders, and one of the images I brought to you was of a Crusader. Those who um, took the cross, and put that on their armor and on their weaponry, not fighting against uh, um, spiritual forces, but literally physical forces. They took that cross, and it became a symbol of violence against another people group. Those who took the cross felt morally superior to others for a number of reasons. One, and one of the reasons why they took the cross was because they were promised for a small amount, uh, an indulgence for their sins. These indulgences, that by taking the cross and going to fight in the battle, I would be forgiven and be guaranteed heaven, was one of the reasons as to why um, they did those things. As a result, any action, any violence they did was justified by their wearing of this cross and by their indulgence given to them. This, these indulgences later were used to gather money together for the forgiveness of sin in order to pay for cathedrals and such. It was these indulgences that, that Martin Luther, the original, protested against uh, Rome and the Protestants and the Reformation. And I'd continue on, but I already can see the eyes glazing over at this point in time, so we'll stop there. One of the war cries of the Crusaders was, God wills it. They were so convinced that God wills it that they could justify whatever they would do. A friend of mine wrote me this past week. A number of you did. More responses than I've had probably from any message so far. And he wrote this. He said, I may be more challenged by reactions of Christians towards the world than the actions of the world itself. I thought that was an interesting statement. Went on to say, even truth is lost when shared in hate. Something that I also would agree with. The whole concept of how we engage the world, how we spend our time and the way we pursue certain causes is extremely important. I've mentioned C.S. Lewis, a writer, several times, and some of you know that I enjoy him a lot. He is by no means uh, scripture. 
I enjoy him because he speaks to specific issues, and he does it in a way that is both, I find, uh, humble and intelligent. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It came out of a series of conversations he had over the BBC broadcasting during World War II. It was actually written in 1942 during the war. Lewis um, was one who'd actually fought in World War I, and now it's World War II, and in this book, he's having an older demon advise a younger demon on how to manipulate and deceive and draw believers such as yourself, patients as he'd refer them, away from worship of the enemy, which is God. It's a little bit of a dark book as you get into the mind of a demon. It's spiritually revealing in certain ways. It was one of the most popular books he wrote, and Lewis was asked if he would do a follow-up to it and refused to do it because of the dangers of focusing too much upon darkness. So he didn't do that. Near the back end of the book, as the senior devil Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood, he says this, I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient, the guy he's trying to mess with, an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, meaning God, are to be encouraged. All extremes. Not always, of course, but at least during this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it's our business to soothe them, yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. Realize that the enemy of our souls seeks to distract and to distort and to divide us wherever possible. Our business to inflame them. He said, whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him under the influence of partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Doesn't matter as long as he gets consumed by it. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he's pursuing, providing that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful of them down here in hell, he's saying. He was arguing the issues were not patriotism and the issues were not pacifism, both which can have their virtue. He was saying whatever cause 
overcomes that person, that they are more pursuant of that and engaged in that emotionally, mentally, spiritually than they are the things of faith, the darker that person can become. Now, I said Lewis had fought in World War I as a lieutenant. He was proud, extremely proud, of both England and of his own specific Irish heritage. And he had lived in the context of two world wars. One he fought, the other one he lived through and wrote this material during the time of that. As World War II neared at one point, Lewis was quite impatient with those who forgot the horror of war. In 1939, Lewis heard a priest pray at the end of a message, Prospero, O Lord, our righteous cause. In a letter to his brother, Lewis reports that he engaged him in a conversation as he left the church. He said, the audacity of informing God that our cause was righteous, a point on which God may have his own view. I hope it's quite like ours, of course, but you never know with him. And so the issue of humility where God's views are concerned and where we are invoking that to support our view. How many of you have heard the term, by any means necessary? You may not know the core of the history of that. It was started with a guy named Franz Fanon in 1960, a guy from Martinique in the Caribbean, a Marxist thinker who was dealing with the question why we use violence as revolutionaries and saying that we use that because, you know, uh, any, any means necessary. Um, Miroslav Volv, uh, instantly back up for a moment, it became popular also by Jean Sartre, an existentialist, but where it became into our lexicon as people today uh, you probably heard it in the context of Malcolm X fighting for racial equality, saying, you know, by any means necessary, violence, whatever the case is. Now, Malcolm X stood in stark contrast to another great fighter for civil rights and racial equality, Martin Luther King, who said, uh, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Miroslav Volv, a Croatian theologian, wrote, To triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetuated. The second victory, when the evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. To what degree do we, as individuals, get caught up in causes or an idea where we begin to believe that anything is justified in our actions. You know the name Malcolm X. You know the name of Martin Luther King. I don't know that you would know, for the most part, the name Scott Roeder. Scott Roeder said that in 1992, after watching the 700 Club, an evangelical television show, 
that, quote, that day I knelt down and I did receive Christ as my Savior. This was in 92. As he engaged in Christianity, he was particularly drawn to aspects of um, the anti-abortion movement. So much to the degree that on May 30 of 2009, he bought a 22 caliber gun, went out and did some target practice, and then the next day walked into in the middle of a church service and shot Dr. George Tiller in the head, killing him instantly. Dr. George Tiller was an abortionist, a notorious abortionist. Operation Rescue West's Vice President, Cheryl Sullinger, was in prolonged communication with Roeder before he assassinated Tiller. She originally, initially denied she'd had any contact, but then her name and cell phone was found on a sticky on the dashboard of Roeder's car. She admitted that she'd not only been in communication, but she gave him Tiller's um, schedule as to when he'd be at a courthouse and things of this nature. Tiller stated that he was doing what he did to defend babies being killed. That was his reason, and he was motivated by his Christian faith. Now, we as a church are staunchly opposed to abortion. It is murder. It is um, in no way defensible in Christian thought. Later this week, we'll be engaging with Compassion Pregnancy Center up on Gratiot. We're helping to facilitate 50 uh, cradles uh, being given to them for usage, as well as we're going to be giving them a, a significant sum of money that came from our Christmas gathering uh, of support. This is something we believe in. But at what point does it become thing, something that is a cause far greater than anything else that it pushes out the very things of God to the point that a Scott Roeder, in the name of God, would execute someone for that? How many of you heard of Keith Green? Those of you that haven't, are mostly under 30. And you should go on the YouTube. You should go on YouTube and check him out. Keith Green was a, a brilliant musician. Uh, he and his wife were both raised Jewish, came to a dynamic faith in Christ, died tragically in an uh, airplane accident. Um, Melody Green continued on their work and she wrote a pamphlet entitled Abortion, Attitudes for Action. And though Melody uh, was and still is strongly committed to saving the unborn, her stronger and foundational commitment to Christ impelled her to add this advice to her tract. She's diametrically opposed to abortion, but she wrote this in this tract of Attitudes for Action towards it. Quote, Christians working for pro-life must be pro-Jesus first. He must be our focus. We must be careful not to allow ourselves to be consumed by a cause rather than consumed by Jesus. 
giving even a godly cause priority over and above our personal relationship with God will grieve him. Jesus has to be our foundation. Otherwise, we run a very, very, very serious risk. We are told in Scripture how to engage with those who we are in opposition to on whatever the cause or the circumstance are. And violence is never an option. And it should be noted, Malcolm X eventually gave up that statement as well too, not to Christian faith, but he gave it up and in part was killed because of that. Violence by any means necessary. Instead, we're told in Colossians chapter 4, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt so it tastes good so that you may know how to answer everyone. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect. Towards those who oppose us on whatever cause, violence not only is never an option, harsh and violent words are not an option. And engaging with other Christians who may be differing in their views of those things, we're not to throw bombs or, or set those off and detonate and destroy and divide, but instead we're supposed to have a different approach on things. When the Occupy Wall Street action was going on years ago. And then it hit other places. And I happened to be in London with a friend of mine at the time when um, the Occupy London thing was taking place. And it was on the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral. And I'd gone down there really to see the cathedral. At the same time, these guys were all camped out in tents and everything else like that. They were, they were squatting and trying to get their point across. And, and I didn't agree necessarily with their point. So we had a conversation my friend and I engaged them, and they were very passionate about their views. And I was, I was quiet and gentle, and then as I walked away, I pulled up their tent pegs quietly so their tent would collapse. And many of you realize that that was a joke, a poor joke, but it was a joke, okay? That's what I do, poor jokes, all right? No, we engaged them in conversation. I found it stimulating. We were gracious, we were kind. They had a very negative view of Christians. By the time we're done, I don't know that we overrode those negative views, but I know we caused a hesitancy, and one of them even commented, you guys aren't quite the same as, as what I've understood Christians to be. I don't know if we changed hearts and minds, but we set something in their head there that was of a different view at least that shook their perspective of things. Second Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, I read last week, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. This is not to say that we're not to be engaged in the situations and circumstances that surround us. We live life. That's part of what we do. But he's saying that as a soldier, our first responsibility is to our commander, the one who enlisted us, who saved us. His purposes, his things must drive all that stuff. Civilian affairs and the involvement of that have to be limited 
under the guideline he gives us. So if that's the case, and we're to be careful of what causes we're involved in, then what is the cause that should be preeminent for us? Causes like uh, against abortion or against um, you know, this or that, whatever the case may be, we can be involved in. But what should we then choose as the overriding one? The cause of Christ was to come to seek and save that which was lost. That was the purpose. We can engage in discussions about the definition of marriage, and we should. We can engage in the discussions of of the rights of the unborn, and we should. But the degree to which those causes, although meritorious, overcome in people's eyes or within our own heart, the ultimate cause of Christ we run a serious risk. One writer gave an illustration of this on something that I believe strongly on, but put it in the proper context about the desire and the, uh, to, to, to open one's doors to Christians of all races and ethnicities and saying that that is a worthy one and one that is, has a biblical basis in Acts and in Paul's epistles and has the potential to bring revival to churches and cities across the country as we become a multi-ethnic church. And I agree with that. But he says there's a subtle danger threatening congregations that would be overly intentional in its intention to institutionalize, institutionalize, make as their central cause racial and ethnic diversity. Quote, if the church allows its multi-ethnic mission to define its central and sole identity, it will be tempted to mute, ignore, or even revise aspects of the Bible, orthodox theology, and or sacred tradition that do not support and promote that identity. It will be tempted as well to judge other congregations, other believers and individuals, not by their adherence to the gospel message, but by how they measure up against the diversity yardstick. If such a congregation continues to slide down the slippery slope toward idolatry of that, it may discover too late that it has ceased to become a multi-ethnic, all-caps church, which is good and right, and has morphed into a all-caps, multi-ethnic, small-lettering church. Ethnic diversity will no longer be one of the fruits of the Great Commission. Rather, Christianity will have been reduced to one more helpful ally in the building of an egalitarian, multi-ethnic utopia. He uses this example in his writings not because that he thinks the undergirding ideas are bad ones, but because they are exactly so praiseworthy. Patriotism. Pacifism doesn't matter which one as long as it distracts you and pulls you in. Nationalism. Christian nationalism, where you wrap the gospel into an American flag, where we confuse our loyalty to our country, which is a good thing, with loyalty to the kingdom of God. Those are not to be confused. Where we merge Christian and American identities 
One writer, Jeremy Beller, says, quote, Christian nationalism is the intertwining of the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of men. In the American context, it's often displayed by describing America through language reserved for the kingdom of God. The marriage between patriotism and righteousness further blurs the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. Whether it's nationalism, as we spoke about last week, whether it's a crusade where we are involving ourselves in one cause or the other, whether it's the seeking intentionally to the degree that multi-ethnicism and multiculturalism, which is a good thing to be seeking, becomes the preeminent issue by which we judge everything else instead of by the gospel. Wherever those things come, something gets lost in that process. Lewis wrote another book called The Four Loves where he talks about love. And in here he writes this, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. God wills it. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all of the claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake, whether it's love of this cause that is righteous, love of this value which is significant, love of this country which is great, whatever it is, is thereby lawful and even meritorious. He went on to write, we may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God, then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves, they're allowed to become good things, in other words. They're allowed to become gods, do not remain loves or good things. They are still called so, but they can, in fact, become complicated forms of hatred. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. No other causes. 1 John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so, as I conclude this conversation with you this morning, and as we go through life together, nearly all of us are involved in supporting a variety of good causes, in themselves good things, including some that are charitable, political, or religious in nature. And while this can often be commended, A good cause can also become a source of idolatry if it distracts us from following Christ, from loving God with all our heart, all our soul, and with all our mind. And so the question I have for us as a church in this second part of this No Other series, are you or I involved with any good causes that we are so involved in, so preoccupied with, so caught up with, that the love of that thing which was initially good has become in and of itself a God to us.
something that moves our passions in a way that we have no problem setting off bombs that divide and destroy, even with brothers and sisters in Christ. Things for which we're willing to kill other people, either, either literally or figuratively in our tone, in our conversation. We are told that we are not to have any other gods. What have we allowed to so infiltrate our hearts and minds that it's become this idol in our lives and no one dare touch it? I offer this to you this morning very humbly and in no way arrogantly or loudly. because this is what I see. But this is also what I believe. That the enemy would distract us, the enemy would distort our thinking and would divide us as a people. So that generations from now, we don't even remember what the conflict was about. We just know they're Catholics, and they're Protestants, or they're this, or they're that, or we're this, and they're those. Father, I pray right now for those who have been injured by um, our absorption in good things that became too much preeminent in our lives. I pray for those individuals. I pray for those of us, myself included, Lord, that have allowed good things, ministry things, righteous things, to become so large in our heart, in our mind, and in our vision that they have minimized you and squeezed you and your ways out of our lives. I pray, Lord, a sense of repentance upon your people that we would renounce those things, even those good things, that interfere with your goals and your purposes and reaching those who are lost. God, we want your heart. As we close this gathering day, I'll, I'll just tell you two things. One is, by nature and by upbringing, I'm, I'm inclined towards warfare. I have to remind myself that it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spirits. That it's not about being part of this world and defending the things of this world, but being part of, of a citizenship that is yet to come. So just understand I'm, I'm part of this conversation today. And the, and the second thing is this. Last week and this week, these were the tough parts. It is safe to come back next week. 
You've endured the most difficult segments. And so as we continue on this journey, as we continue to reflect upon the cross and upon having no other gods, no other causes, let's gather next week and talk about no other name. Okay? Father, I thank you. I thank you for a gathering such as this where we can be open and honest with one another and where you are truly honored. And I pray, God, that you continue to guide us into these things, into these truths. And I pray, Lord, that you would not let us be divided or that we would personally distort things or cause distractions or stumbling to our brothers and sisters and particularly to those who are not of the faith who have no understanding of what motivates us. They only hear our words and see our actions, our posts, and our forwards. And by that, they judge your cross and judge the God we worship. So let us be circumspect, I pray, in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.